the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Welcome to Dreams Not Memes Podcast. How's it going, everybody? This is another episode of Dreams Not Memes. Today I'm here with my friend Manny. Manny is a academic and an activist who is from Guam and based in New Zealand. And today we're going to talk to him about his story. How's it going? Hey, hoppity brain. Doing well, doing well. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in activism? I know we were talking about that earlier before we started recording, but just your story Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, so um, yeah, like we were talking about, uh, a lot of things in my life led me towards activism. Um, One of those was coming to terms as a young, at a young age with uh, being racialized and uh, noticing the disparity between, um, you know, white American military members on Guam and then uh, Tomoru, like myself, um, being indigenous from Guam. Um, and yeah, I mean, like reflecting before this episode, about like, you know, my own life experiences. Um, I remember being like eight or nine and um, being asked by my family, you know, whether I wanted to go shopping on the military base on Guam, um, Anderson Air Force Base. Um, And I shared with them that I I just didn't feel safe there. And, um, you know, for me, I just, you know, partially just recognizing that there weren't a lot of people there that looked like me on the military base. Like you see a lot of white people um, walking around and stuff. And, you know, I felt kind of alone and uh, kind of isolated. And I mean, at that age, I only really ever saw Americans on uh, on like TV screens or in the movies, you know? And so it felt just very odd to me. Um, and, you know, I've had instances like that uh, throughout life um, where, you know, like even at the age of 10, I moved to California and, you know, I've had countless interactions with people where they'll be like, oh, where, where is Guam? You know, you guys are American. You guys speak English. Like, does your family live in, gla- in uh, grass huts and stuff? And so, you know, there's all these li- little like... Um, I don't know if you'd call them microaggressions or not, but uh, all of these instances in my life that sort of like pent up and fed my curiosity into Guam's political status and my my own status as like a colonial subject. And, you know, it's been a lifelong journey. But essentially, like when I finally moved back home, it was at the height of uh, like um, the military or like just at the beginning of the military buildup. And they announced that they were going to take um, Paget, which is an ancestral village uh, for a firing range. And this was all around the same time that I was just starting college. And um, like the movement, the activist movement was really, was growing. And I felt like it was an opportunity for me to learn and really explore some of these things that that I've been feeling, some of these things that I've um, experienced throughout my life and to try to really understand um, you know, what this was. And um, after that, this was about like 2009 or 10. Mm-hmm. And from that time, I just found, you know, every opportunity that I could to try and uh, volunteer and help out with some of the, the movements back home. True. And, you know, 
all of that comes from a place of love, you know, love for my island, love for my people. And it also helped me get to where I am now. Um, my activism informs my politics, my, uh, and especially my academic work, you know? So I'm doing a thesis now on, um, on settler colonial discourse and basically looking at how um, news media facilitates um, colonialism in Guam, you know? And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, you know, just trying to learn more about myself and trying to contribute to my community and connecting with others too. I, I completely understand that. And I even resonate with the concept of being aware of how your social and political infrastructure makes you more hyper aware of, yeah. of discrimination. So as an academic, can you tell us a little bit about more what you study? Like I'm here in sociology. I'm also here in journalism. So what I, I'm hearing a lot of fields. So, so what, yeah. what do you study? Yeah. So, um, on paper, it'll be communication studies. Gotcha. But yeah, but like you like you said, I mean, there's a lot of fields that are kind of implicated mm -hmm. in the work that I'm doing. And it, it honestly wouldn't be my first choice. Um, but um, when it comes down to like, you know, material outcomes, um, I chose communication studies because that was an opportunity for me to, to get a gig back home at, at our university. So... Um, uh, a lot of things. I read a lot of uh, Chomsky. Um, I, I encounter like Zizek and all that, all that like heady, heady shit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> thinking about like uh, uh, ideology and discourse and all of these like really uh, convoluted, like abstract things. But essentially, what I'm doing, what I, what I hope to do, is like decolonize sort of like this Western idea of, um, of ideology, of what ideology is in discourse, and also look at how, how those things apply to the colonies, how to, to US territories. Because I mean, like all of these fields and like all of these researchers uh, will wonder white, and then they've focused on, um, you know, politics in Europe and the continental US and um, all of these things are, are just as relevant uh, to Guam and like Puerto Rico and, you know, the other uh, U.S. territories. And so I'm curious to know how ideology and discourse play out, you know, in Guam and facilitated by the media and how this all ties into like the structure of uh, settler colonialism. So. And, and that's such an important thing for us to know, and, and I mean us as people, because um, I, I definitely think marginalized people see it first, whether they are able to, you know, articulate it or not. Like, I, I have a friend who is from Philly, but is currently in Africa, who's studying, like, Western artifacts on their understanding of music and how that affects people's perception of what is black music versus white music, et cetera, et cetera when really, like, the structure is, is very similar. Like, we all use a flattened seventh or the blue note, but yeah. because of the way the music's done, we start to racialize the understanding of music. But that yeah. applies conceptually the same thing with the way our pol politics are set up. Mm -hmm. We perceive people differently based on 
their statehood or based on their city or the town they're from. Uh, and, and there's a lot of microaggressive racism rooted under that. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, you just, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to relearn guitar right now. Oh, I really? Sort of tangential, but I mean, like, you know, learning scales like Phrygian, Ionian, like all these things that just sound very exotic and like, yeah. oh, you listen to, <laughs> you know, we hear this all the time. No, that's that's very true. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick pause and yeah. continue this conversation. Okay. Quick message. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Dreams.Memes. Please make sure to follow Dreams.Memes podcast on your preferred streaming channel or on Instagram at Dreams.Memes podcast. To support Dreams.Memes podcast, feel free to contact me at adaywithoutlove at gmail.com for advertising or sponsorship opportunities. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, now we're back. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now as an academic? Uh, what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm grinding away trying to finish my thesis. Mm -hmm. um, New Zealand's, or the, the, the PhD format here is really different from the US. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, one of the reasons why I came here was because instead of doing like four to seven years of um, coursework in a US program. Um, they allow you to just get right into your research. And I did that because like, I figured, like who else is gonna know about Guam? Like if I go to, to a PhD program in the, in the States, like who else is going to be able to facilitate a thesis and know, know as much about Guam as I need them to know in order to mm -hmm my PhD. And so I figured the whole thing was going to be sort of self-driven anyway. And I might as well, you know, do the program in New Zealand and um, just get right to it. And, you know, so for the past like two years, I've just, I've been writing my thesis and I'm hoping to, to complete that this year. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm also just working. And I mean, the, it's, I don't know, it's weird because um, I don't know, a lot of people have perceptions of New Zealand as being like, uh, being very Pacific, very, well, at least coming from like a uh, Pacific perspective, mm -hmm. like we from Guam, being from Guam, like we hear about like Maori and we hear about like the indigenous rights movement here. And um, there's a perception that it's all like very decolonial and all that stuff, but it's still, it's also, this is also a settler colonial country and it is very, it is very white. True. And so like, even in the PhD program, like um, I've had to like fight for, you know, scholarship opportunities and, you know, I've been, been denied uh, many, many opportunities many times because I, I am studying in a predominantly white field, communication studies. And so the whole thing has been very challenging for me. Mm. And um, yeah, so like I'm working two jobs right now, just trying to <laughs> just trying to make it through this program for the next couple months so I can submit my thesis. I, I definitely resonate that uh, as a former academic myself. Yeah. 
Speaking of the settler colonial aspect of New Zealand, if I remember correctly, in our original conversation when we were talking via Instagram, you said that you were based in, it begins with an A, the original name for New Zealand. What is the original name for New Zealand? Aotearoa is the te reo Maori word for New Zealand. And, yeah. and do more people know that or not really? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's pretty... It's pretty common knowledge. I mean, here at least, you know. Yeah, so um, New Zealand is, uh, and so like, yeah, New Zealand is pretty is pretty unique, like from an indigenous perspective, because the Maori people have, I think they might have been like the first indigenous people with um, a treaty with um, the with the state, in this case, the crown, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you do see a lot of things that you won't find in like um, in Guam, especially. Um, so like there are like uh, Te Reo Maori schools um, all around and the language is pretty, is present, you know, um, in your everyday life. Mm. Um, and especially like, I don't know, I've been, I got turned on to uh, TikTok, you know, and um, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, TikTokers from New Zealand who speak Te Reo Maori, and and what they do is like they perpetuate you know the language and stuff. And so, yeah, the the movement here for language revitalization and preservation is really strong. So, I love that. I mean, I was talking to someone from um, Nunavut, which is the only Aboriginal territory in Canada. And we were talking about the preservation of, you know, Nunavut native languages and how the Canadian government reinforces funding and programming for English and French, but not so much for the 24 to 27 different languages. And, and the reason why I asked you that about New Zealand is like, I know, at least here in the States, when it comes to colonialism, when it comes to aboriginal history and culture we don't talk about it enough at least i didn't and according to statistics i was given like a good education and i'm not saying that they like spout out privilege i'm just saying like i missed the boat i didn't learn about this until i started smoking weed in college so <laughs> you know what i mean like i think colonialism is something that more people need to talk about so that we start to join the fight to end it Definitely, definitely. Um, uh, this paper I was, um, or that I'm working on right now, um, one of the uh, articles that I was reading talks about, you know, for my research, uh, talks mm. about seller moves to innocence. Mm. Um, and like, it's the idea that there's, there's these strategies, these rhetorical strategies that sellers use to sort of, um, uh, to make themselves seem like innocent in the process of colonialism or colonization. Um, and yeah, there's all these, one of those that, that resonates with me as you're speaking is like, um, there's one uh, strategy where they'll, they'll talk about these things as if they're in the past, like colonialism happened um, and magically there's no more indigenous people left. Like those are all people from back then and they don't exist now. So moving forward, everything we do is okay, you know? And so 
you know, just thinking about how in discourse and rhetoric, how like indigenous peoples are, are made absent. Um, they're made, uh, we're, we're erased from, yeah. from the discourse yeah. period. And uh, yeah, um, where's it going with that? But also, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about these things, just thinking about, you know, discourse, uh, discourse back home, like in, in news media back home. Um, in the past few years, there's been, um, there was a court case by a man named uh, Dave Davis. was a white settler who basically uh, filed a lawsuit against Guam, the government of Guam, um, stating that he should have a right to vote in uh, our political status plebiscite, or essentially what, I mean, you could call it a decolonization plebiscite. Mm-hmm. And the purpose behind that is was for like the Tomoru people to determine for ourselves uh, by vote, like what political status and affiliation we wanted with the U.S. moving forward. And so he called it unconstitutional. He called it, uh, uh, he pleaded racist play or racism um, <laughs> against himself and others uh, like him. And uh, he won, sadly. What? The, I mean, we should surprised yeah so like the federal government i mean we shouldn't be surprised about these things but the federal government um argued in his favor um and so like they struck down guam's guam's law that created the plebiscite to begin with because it was unconstitutional and so like right now like groups back home are kind of scrambling to figure out what's next like how do we pursue decolonization without this process that we've um sort of been conceptualizing around for so long. But, you know, in thinking about kind of the language that is used um, around the court case, um, there's all this talk about like, or people like Dave Davis will will talk about the Tsumoru people as people from the past and people um, who, so for instance, like the whole blood quantum thing, right? Like it's it's very common that you'll hear settlers talk about how like oh there's no more there's no more real Indians around there's no more real Tomori people around because we're all mixed so we're all the same people and so your right to be here as an indigenous person is just the same as my right to be here as a white settler you know because now we're all equal um, and so there are things like that that play out in the media mm-hmm. yeah. Colonialism and gentrification are are almost like cousins that just practice uh, racism. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I really mean that because, like, listening to this. Well, first of all, my first question is: as you can see, I'm a lot of lost words. Dave, how how recent was this court case? Um, it's it began. It was like almost a decade long. I forgot oh, wow. when when it was first filed. But as recently as 20, as recently as last year, there was still Jeez. action yeah. in the case. You know, I think um, he won, he won a uh, subsequent um, uh, lawsuit or something like that. Um, and basically, like, the government of Guam had to pay him uh, for damages. <laughs> so uh, they, they, they paid for his attorneys. Um, I think they issued him, like... Um, 
like maybe a million bucks or something like that. I don't know. That's wow. probably not. Yeah. So to to add a uh, salt to the wound, you know, like he won yeah. the court, and then this. So. And was he was he part of the military? Like, is he born and raised in Guam or? Yeah, yeah. So um, he was a retired uh, Air Force, uh, like officer or something. Gotcha. But I mean, like, and that's the thing too is like U.S. territories in Guam, especially like you kind of you kind of get a very narrow uh, subsect of of people who who settle in Guam, you know. Um, they're, and they all usually have something to do with the military. They might have been like um, military members who decide, oh, I love, I love this tropical paradise. I think I'll, I'll just retire here. Mm-hmm. So they'll move their entire families here. Or you'll have uh, contractors who work for the military in some way, who, who, do, the, who do much of the same. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of Americans that you encounter on Guam are there because of the military by and large. So yeah, and with that, there's like a very particular like ideology, you know, that they that they bring with them. It's like America, the bastion of freedom and democracy. You know, we're here to bring civilization to you guys. Um, and all, all that, all that shit. Yeah, which is very entitled and terrible. I call it Columbus syndrome. Columbus syndrome. I like that. Yeah, I stole it from a YouTube video. It's it's funny and sad because um, there's this guy, I can't think of the name of it, but if you type in Trap Cheese Incident, you, you can definitely find it. But he talks about like how like in the States, there's these bloggers, specifically, they're usually like white women that are always saying like, check out the new trend. And then like in this video, it's Trap Cheese. And Trap Cheese has been a sandwich that's cost like $4 at the corner store for decades like probably since the 40s and it was usually served to mostly black and latino uh, communities latinx communities and now chopped cheeses are like 10 15 dollars because white people are eating them and think it's the new next big thing and you know it's not available to the community that originated it and that sort of uh cycle is applied and that's what i was trying to say is like colonialism and, and and gentrification really go hand in hand because a lot of times, privileged people, because it's not always white people, um, will move to a territory, bring their Starbucks, their yoga, their kombucha, or whatever, and think that like they're adding the pepper and salt without recognizing what's already there and just accepting it for what it is. And, and, and it, it's caused centuries of problems that needs to change. I absolutely, like, I see that. I see that a lot in, like, the social media that I, that I tune into, you know. Um, there was one where, um, like, there was, like, a group of white women in, like, Texas or something that created their own, like, mahjong set. And so, um, like, the, uh, the Asian diaspora community was up in arms about that. And then, like, at the same time, a lot of the same, the same stuff, of course, this stuff happens in Guam. Like you said, these are, like, you know, colonialism and gentrification, you know, mm-hmm. are not so distant cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, back home, um, yeah, 
I'm, I'm sorry, man. I was trying to think of an example for you. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, what you will find is like um, military spouses or even like military members themselves who attach themselves to this, uh, this local, you know, I'm using brackets here, but a local identity. And, you know, um, they'll they'll commodify, they'll um, appropriate um, tomoru aesthetics and foods and um, and they'll they'll do these things and then sell it back to us. Like they might start like a, a restaurant or something or like a food truck or um, yeah, stuff like that. That is the terrible stuff I'm talking about. Like, yeah, Taco Bell's a thing, but there's so many local restaurants owned by, like, you know, Latinx families that, that, make, that make the food. I'd rather get the food from the people that, that come right. from the culture that made it. Like, you know, I've never had Guam food, but I'm not about to get Guam food made by Marketing Mike. You know what right. I mean? Like, I just won't, because... Prince, and then if I find out, I'll stop. You know what I mean? Because there's also that that guys where you think you're eating the original mm -hmm. cultural food, and then you find out, oh crap, this is part of the same monster. I don't want to support. So I, I definitely recognize that. Mm -hmm. um, moving forward, when you're done your PhD, what are some of your goals? Yeah. So my goal is to um, move back home. Mm -hmm. um, I've been stuck a little longer than expected here in Aotearoa. Um, but my plan is to go back home and then um, uh, hopefully teach at our, our university back there. And um, with that, try to, I mean, ideally I would like to um, inform like journalism students um, in the program today um, to be more critical of our political status and uh you know take all these things that i've learned with me throughout the years and try to make them more accessible to um young undergrads you know and mm -hmm. uh all of these things that like i only really encountered like academic texts that i only encountered um in my master's program and moving forward i, I would like to make these things more uh, available to the community at large oh, yeah I yeah so, and and I definitely think it, it, it needs to be more available. And like, for for non academics or just the general public, what are some things that they can do to be more educated or more aware of what's happening regarding colonialism in your community and, and colonialism in general? Ah, that's a that's a heavy. Well, that's a that's a a big question. Mm -hmm. Um, very big question. Um, I was watching a, uh, an interview with, uh, Cornell West, um, mm. a couple months ago, and he talks about, you know, having international or thinking internationally and approaching things from like an internationalist perspective and looking at the bigger picture. And so not only are there, there are all these like injustices in the U S continent, you know, but um, the whole thing with like uh, police police brutality and um, the militarization of police forces, you know, all of those things come from somewhere. 
And I forgot what statute it was in US law, um, which basically like it funnels um, surplus military equipment into, you know, uh, local police, uh, um, police departments. But so like, that's just, that's just one example of the very material ways that um, America's uh, uh, militarism abroad is connected to, um, you know, injustice at home for you, you know, True. for people, people in the continent. And so I guess I would just like to encourage people to think critically about um, what the U.S. is doing elsewhere. Um, and not just that, but think about um, these gray areas, these gray spaces like Guam that are neither here nor there. We're not sovereign and we're also not completely a part of the US. There are places like Guam and American Samoa, Puerto Rico and the Northern Mariana Islands that are in sort of like political limbo and it's because of this political status that the U.S. is doing very um, gross and despicable things. Um, right now, Guam is in the midst of a military buildup, and um, we're also now encompassed by what is essentially the largest military uh, training and testing site in the world. It's called the uh, Mariana Islands uh, Training and Testing Area, um, or the MIT for short, M-I-T-T. And so if you look at it on a map, it, it really is um, the most expansive uh, military testing site um, in the world. And what they're gonna be doing there is testing like, um, you know, modern, um, uh, basically warfare technology. And what like, some of those things involve like um, detonating explosives, which will be like, are just terrible for marine mammals, <laughs> like uh, whales that are endangered. Um, and it's terrible for the land. They're going to be bombing um, uh, islands that are homes to my people, the Tsumoru people. Um, and all these things, they, they hold these massive war games each year um, in the Mariana Islands. And so I would just like for people to be aware of those things. And, you know, Bernie Sanders did a lot um, uh, in his campaign in drawing, bringing awareness to just how much, like the insane amount of money that the US is spending on defense. Um, but when you, when you hear the word defense and all that stuff, like all these things kind of feel very abstract to a lot of people in the US. But, you know, what, what does defense mean? Uh, a lot of times it means um, building new facilities on military bases or expanding um, military fence lines. Um, it means buying new aircraft, uh, stuff like that. And all these things go somewhere. And unfortunately for my people, a lot of those things end up in our backyard. And um, some one third of Guam is uh, occupied by the military that's all indigenous land. And so, yeah, I would just encourage people to think internationally about these things. I, I need to find out for myself, who can I write to? Um, 
to make this more aware because I, I love that you brought up TikTok. Yeah. Because um, TikTok, it's it's a vast, crazy highway, but I do believe it's a great tool for short form education. Definitely. And, you know, like this podcast is long form education. And if there's a way that there could be like, how can I put this? If there's a way that there can be an informational campaign, and I I hate saying campaign because this needs to be long term, not short term, where people are aware and start pushing the pressure on politicians to end militarism in these islands, I think that would be, like, the beginning of that. I know for myself, like, between talking to you, talking to Makalek, and, and, and a few other people, Matalek, my apologies, um, I need to start sharing more of that information other than just the podcast episode and hope that my platform can start developing conversations with even bigger platforms and so forth and so forth. Yeah, that, all of that stuff really helps out. And um, it's really cool that, like, there are people like Ilan Omar and AOC, of course, and all, the, all of these, like, mainstream politicians who are, are very active on social media. And, yeah, the, the challenge, of course, is always going to be how do we get our message to them, you know? And so if you, if you could do that, I'm not a very good dancer, so I don't know if, uh, how uh, good I could my... <laughs> My TikTok presence is marginally political, but as I build, I, I haven't even told the, my TikTok followers that I have a podcast yet, but I do have it as a note to start talking about this on TikTok, but on my Twitter, Instagram, things like that, I'll, I'll, I'll be more aggressive than I already am about sharing what's going on within the, the communities that my you know guests you know, like occupy, mm-hmm. but having this conversation with you and even hearing about TikTok reminds me like hey do my part mm-hmm. as well so yeah man and I, I really like what you're doing with the podcasts i mean part of the work of decolonization is building building connection you mm-hmm. know building relationality with uh, with other people and you know I, I like it's a pretty pretty hefty goal trying to speak to a thousand people oh yeah, yeah. it's not it's not easy don't, don't get me wrong um i mean i have definitely taken breaks like to the point that I won't interview on Martin Luther King Day or if it's like someone close to me's birthday, I'll just publicly say, hey, can't do an interview, can't do an edit. Um, But at the same time, it's unintentionally, this podcast platform has allowed me to understand what erasure means for people that are not me. And also to think more of the world as a global world instead of the world right in front of me. Because, yeah, I might be Black, Native American, and Irish coming from Philadelphia, and I've been a recipient of racism. I know that's weird to say, like, recipient, like it's an award. Um, But at the same time, I know I'm not the only one, and I know people experience, you know, microaggressions, macroaggressions, you know, in, in this case, colonialism in so many different ways. Like, my understanding of colonialism came from stories from my grandfather, who's, like, you know, half Native American. Not so much, like, what I learned in the class. But in terms of, like, learning about colonialism on a much global level, like I said, 
I didn't really start getting into that until I started meeting hippie like friends from smoking weed and, and, and so forth and so forth. So I'm not shouting out weed. I'm a sober man now. But <laughs> you get my point. So yeah. Yeah, man. And that's the thing too. I mean uh, it's it it all starts with uh, you know, education. Mm-hmm. You know, education, school, school, um, they're called uh, ideological state apparatuses. That's the, that's the big, the heady, the heady term for it, right? But I mean, it's the idea that like in these spaces, um, like kindergarten, you know, and you know, all of your primary education, like these are places where you're inoculated with uh, like hegemonic ideologies. Like you're, you're told to support the US, you're told that, you know, the dispossession of Native Americans um was something that happened in the past and you know thanksgiving happened and then magically you know here we are america true yeah so yeah i really like what you're doing here and um you know the opportunities with tiktok and other social media to to really connect you know um from trans local spaces you know my community to yours you know and around the world and stuff um to to bring solidarity uh, to each other's movements and, um, you know, challenge the, you know, the final boss. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. You have to eliminate the oppression. Indeed. So, yeah. uh, this has definitely been a good episode of dreams on memes and thank you for your wisdom and your story. Thank you, man. Anytime. Anytime. Hi, this is Brian from A Day Without Love. Thank you for listening to Dreams Not Memes. I just want you to remember, your dreams matter. If you'd like to support this podcast, email at daywithoutlove at gmail.com for donation information, or follow me for weekly episodes. Thank you for listening and joining my journey. Have a good day.